Welcome to Barn Blog, where our aim is to give you the best in analysis and philosophy, political economy, history, art, culture, and geopolitics from a left-wing and socialist-friendly perspective. We aim to bring you different perspectives from different walks of life and to have you educate yourself what to do with what you learn here. We do not aim to give you prefabricated and easy answers. Abandon all hope, ye who subscribe here, for you will learn, and it will be your responsibility what you do. And with that, let's begin today's episode. Welcome to Barn Blog, and today I am here in a co-produced uh, episode with Strange Matters Magazine um, with Mason Herson Horde, director of the Institute for Social Ecology, um, organizer, communal gardener, doer of stuff. Um, but we're talking today about the. Um, the history of the Nakba and the, up to the current situation uh, and in the Israeli-Gaza war. And we are talking in the middle of what seems to be an uneasy extended truce. Uh, who knows how long it'll last. Everything seems very vague coming out of uh, Israel these days, but um, I we are specifically talking about a piece you published at Strange Matters, um, the second Nakba and the Road to Genocide, and I really liked your piece in specific. I don't do a whole lot on Israel Palestine because I think um, often it ends up being. kind of moral moral stances that I might support, but don't necessarily explain how we got to the situation that we got. And I found that your extensive article, and it is uh, fairly extensive, goes into a good deal of the history of the situation, um, the, the, the different ideologies of Zionisms that play into this, uh, and, you know, the evidence that we have that this current situation, which I think is safe, I think we can call it the second catastrophe, um, the second Nakba, uh, may have had at least a significant backing by people who wanted to use it as a way to, to if not genocide, completely ethnically cleanse Gaza. So, um to get into your article and ask the first question uh, for people who don't follow this. And I think, you know, um, hopefully more people know about the, about the first Nakba now, but can we talk about what, what the Nakba is? Sure. So um, at the, 
at the, the end of World War II, the British government, which was occupying um, what was then called the Mandate of Palestine, realized that their ability to hold together their global empire um, was rapidly waning and, um, you know, it's basically driven by um, both Zionists in Palestine as well as Palestinians to uh, withdraw from the country. And um, in the lead up to this, the, the UN um, passed a resolution saying that you know, this new entity, the United Nations, supports the idea of partitioning this uh, territory into a Jewish state and an Arab state, um, which was you know, rejected by the vast majority of people already living there. Uh, and so in the, in the months in the lead up to the British withdrawal in 1948, um, Zionist militias began carrying out massacres and expulsions of Palestinian villages throughout um, the territory that would become Israel. Um, then in, in May, there's the official withdrawal of British forces. And the following day, um, this Zionist leadership uh, declares independence of what they call the state of Israel. Um, and then a number of surrounding um, Arab countries declare war on that new state. And in the process of uh, kind of like under the cover of this fighting between um, those two forces, the uh, majority of Palestinians living in, in the territory that would become Israel were uh, violently expelled. Uh, about three quarters of a million people who were turned into refugees. Most of these folks believed that they were um, leaving temporarily. So many of them took very little. They kept their keys to their homes um, with the expectation that when things quieted down, they'd be able to uh, come back home. And so there's really two pieces to the Nakba. Um, first, is the expulsion itself. Um, but second is the ongoing violence required to prevent people from being able to return to their homes. So in the years shortly following the end of hostilities in the, uh, 1949, there were all these refugee families who attempted to go back to their home villages. And the, the order to... Israeli forces was to shoot anyone who tried to walk across back across the border. Um, so um, those those people have, have lived in multi multiple generations of refugeehood, uh, many of whom continue to pass down the keys to the homes that um, they left behind in in the hope of being able to return. When I was reading uh, your piece, I was I was struck um, when you dealing with the the various different forms of Zionist ideology that were used to kind of uh, compete, justify, and deal with you know both the, uh, leading up to and and be and beyond the 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 first ethnic cleansing, basically. Um, uh, it's beyond the scope of your article, but I, I do think it is, it is interesting, um, to look at, for example, you know, the faction of Zionism kind of built up by, uh, 
Jakub Zaninsky and um, the Jewish Defense League, you know, which justified itself after the as early as the 1920s um, as as a counterforce and uh, in, in uh, setting up the revisionist movement. Um, can you explain the various early factions of Zionism for people who just don't really understand that it was not a unified movement? Sure. Um, so there, there are a few fissures, mm-hmm. um, or I guess I would say open questions that were contested within the movement in its early years. Um, the first is the question of, are we building a state or is this some kind of cultural movement? Um, and, you know, for some, for some people, the idea of return was about uh, culturally and or religiously rejuvenating um, Jewish life and, you know, didn't have um, political motivations beyond uh, acceptance within the Ottoman Empire. Um, this is definitely like a minority current and one that was um, eclipsed um, after after the First World War. Um, I mean, this is mainly like Martin Buber who and people like that who were, were, you know, if they had any interest in a state at all, it was a binational state. Um, originally with the, you know, under Ottoman rule and then later on, uh, uh, Buber supported, a, you know, a binational independent Palestine. But it, uh, it's interesting because he did call himself a Zionist and that, I think throws people off today. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, and that's because, you know, today the word uh, Zionist pretty much exclusively refers to the majority faction um, that we, or I guess umbrella of factions that we uh, historically referred to as political Zionism. Um, mm-hmm. That being um, those who are attempting to establish a, an independent Jewish state. Um, there are also you know, most of the key uh, fissures or breakdowns within um, Zionism are really internal to political Zionism, the kind of the where and the how mm-hmm. um, and you know, what sort of state we want to establish. Um, I think it's also worth noting people talk about um, Buber um, quite a bit as kind of the, the leading thinker of um, that anti-nationalist Zionism. Um, I think the person we don't bring up enough in this is um, the much more famous Albert Einstein, who you know, was, was less central to this movement, but was also a, a proponent of that, that same vision. Um, unlike Martin Buber, who, um, accepted living in a, you know, a supremacist, uh, Jewish state, um, after, after Israel achieved independence, they actually offered the presidency to Albert Einstein and he rejected it on anti-racist grounds. Um, and, but, you know, had been a a supporter of of this, this, this cultural, um, binational or anti-national, 
uh, Jewish movement under under the umbrella of Zionism up until that point. Um, mm. With within political Zionism, you primarily have a left and right split, um, and the left wing, what often is referred to now as labor Zionism, is the um, largely dominant one. These are people who identified as socialists uh, who saw Zionism as their own workers' movement, as a national movement, um, and were the ones who you know, were the primary architects of, of the expulsion of, of Palestinians who, who built the uh, Israeli state apparatus, uh, organized its um, militia units, um, and you know, I think I think there's sort of a a revisionism that happens, kind of imagining the problems of the Israeli state as uh, tied to its right wing. Uh, you know, the particular um, heinous variety of uh, Israeli nationalism embodied by Netanyahu and um, and his faction. Um, but I think, I think it's important to remember the all the the big pieces. Palestinian dispossession, the Nakba, the occupation. Um, these were things carried out by, by socialists who um, you know, were, were the, the main architects of, of the, the Zionist project. Um, the right, though, is also important because um, there's, there's clear conti- political organizational continuities between some of these um, forces assembling in the 1920s around uh, Jabotinsky, as you mentioned, um, different kinds of militia entities uh, like the Irgun and yeah. Lehi. Um, Precursors the to, the, to the JDL <laughs> in a lot of ways. Well, most directly they lead to the Likud party. So mm. like Menachem Begin, the first right-wing prime minister um, and you know, the first leaders of Likud had himself been um, part of the Irgun, which was a, uh, a terrorist organization that, um, was mainly targeting the, um, the British in Palestine, but also carried out massacres during the, the war in 1948. Um, so these were people who were at the time, um, a minority of the Zionist movement and more extreme in, um, lots of ways, but then, end up ascending into uh, political leadership as part of, you know, kind of a global right-wing turn in, in the 1970s. Um, and, you know, they're not simply more right-wing on grounds of ethno-nationalism, but, but also on the economic front. Um, you know, these were the, the parties that dismantled the socialistic aspects of Israeli society in the, in the 1980s. Um, you know, there, there was neoliberalism happened in Israel as well. And, and so the uh, Likud and you know, the various descendants of revisionist Zionism were um, the folks mainly carrying that out. So the, the revisionists take a long time to really gain the upper hand in Israeli politics. And I think it is important to remind people that the initial Nakba was perpetuated by socialists, hidden by socialists, David Ben-Gurion's government. Uh, you know, covered it up. Um, but it, it it did seem like until 1967 that it was sort of considered like it's a done deal. Uh, 
you know, we, we're not giving this land back, but we don't need to go any further either. And we can maybe start talking about um, honoring the, the quote, two state solution, unquote. Um, you know, why does 67 change that? I mean, there's the obvious reasons, but, you know, let's go into detail here. Well, I, th- I think it's worth keeping in mind that the that Israeli acceptance, at least on paper, mm-hmm. of a two-state solution does not come in 1967. It's much later. Correct. And so um, there, are, there are a number of big systemic changes that reshape the political nature of Palestinian resistance in 1967 and really the whole geopolitical context of um, the conflict. So by you know, anyone who's not that familiar, basically what happens in 1967 is that a coalition of some of the same Arab states, uh, several of which have new uh, so-called revolutionary leadership, um, basically gang up to say we're going to attempt to uh, attack Israel again. We'll, we'll try 1948 a second time. Um, and basically the Israeli intelligence catches wind of this and they launch a preemptive attack on these countries. Um, and it's just an absolute um, embarrassing and devastating defeat for uh, particularly Nasser in who's the president of Egypt and, um, and his allies. And in the process, the, Israeli military um, captures significant territory from these folks. Um, This is when uh, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip uh, become militarily occupied. They also capture the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt, um, the Golan Heights from Syria, and uh, and they frighten all the others into giving up. Um, and with these land seizures, they were able to, uh, over the following decade, extract um, peace agreements from from their uh, hostile neighbors. And so um, many in the uh, Palestinian movement up until that point had kind of seen the other Arab states, um, especially those swept up in the uh, Pan-Arabist or Arab nationalist movement, um, of which Nasser was the leading figure. You know, they, they saw those states as the political vehicles for carrying out their struggle. Um, but 1967 both brings uh, large numbers of Palestinians in the territories under Israeli political and military control. Um, and knocked their um, their political allies in the region really out of the game, um, at least in any substantive way. Um, there was a, a follow-up to this in 1973, but um, yeah, for all intents and purposes, the 1967 is the, is the real turning point. And so um, at the same time, the Palestinian national movement is – Uh, kind of reorienting itself in the context of the global decolonization, national liberation struggles. 
um, it's when organizations like the Palestinian Liberation Organization were formed uh, in, in exile. And you know, there's kind of a, a radicalizing Palestinian consciousness among refugees in Jordan and Lebanon. Um, and, you know, over the course of the 1960s basically clarifies for uh, most Palestinians that all they've got is themselves for um, trying to lift the occupation and be able to return to their homes. Um, and and over, over the course of the late 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, Israel operates under the assumption that the occupation is permanent. Um, they're they're going to attempt to uh, settle these territories, treat them as internal colonies with um, captive markets and exploitable labor. Um, there's no, there's not even the, the um, facade that we're going to eventually move towards Palestinian independence. Uh, it's really only in the aftermath of the first intifada of where their hand was forced to, and that's the beginning of, of the peace process as it's been called. Um, and, and that's the only context where anyone is other than the PLO is, is talking about a two state solution uh, with any seriousness. Well, let's, let's talk about the first uh, intifada and um, the Israeli reaction to it, because it, it seems pretty clear that that both gets the, the, you know, Israel to on paper admit to a two state solution. But it also is when you start seeing the long, slow decline of labor Zionism um, and these uh, the, the, the revisionist Zionist uh, become increasingly dominant after this point, but also there be, there begins to be factions both religious and not more extreme than them, you know, uh, and that's, that's a new development. So, um, you know, what really happens in the seventies? <laughs> and it's a big question, but it, in it Israeli it. politics, yeah, in Israeli politics. And then maybe, maybe we'll switch over to the Palestinian side too. Yeah. Well, um, you know, this is, this is the, the late seventies is the first real defeat for uh, labor Zionism since the founding of the state of Israel. They've had continuous political control um, over the Knesset, the Israeli parliament and the prime minister's uh, seat up to that point. There were some political reshufflings of the left in Israel in, um, in the late sixties, you know, the, old uh, Mapai party um, dissolved slash fused with other ones. Um, and, um, but there was, I think, similar structural forces um, that skewed the, um, the land, the terrain towards um, right-wing insurgent parties in the late seventies, all, all over the world. Um, yeah, this is the beginning of Thatcherism, Reaganism, um, and you know I, I don't think there was at that time very much disagreement about um, how we relate to the Palestinians and the Palestinian question between the parties at that time. Um, I mean, they had different views, but it was not the 
Um, it was not the crux of their political differences. And I think that can be sometimes hard for people today to wrap their heads around, given that that's the main thing that we think about, where you know, the Israeli left wants peace, the Israeli right um, wants settlements. Um, but but I, think, I don't think that was the real axis of, um, of political divide in uh, Israeli society at that time. Everyone was pretty much on board with the settlement project, with um, basically integrating the territories uh, while keeping um, Palestinian subjects at uh, arm's length in terms of terms of political and civil rights. Um, for Palestinians, the 1970s was a period of both escalating political repression as well as a blossoming of a number of um, parts of the national movement. You know, the 1970s is when the Palestinian women's movement is born, um, which you know, ends up becoming one of the most well-organized forces in Palestinian civil society. Uh, it's when some of the resistance parties like Fatah, the PFLP, they start to um, build mass bases within Palestinian civil society, um, not just as uh, guerrilla units operating out of the Lebanese refugee camps, but something that could mobilize people within the occupied territories. Um, This is the, it was in these these years that the uh, Palestinian labor movement within the occupied territories is born as well. Um, And so these, these different forces are the ones that, um, kind of assemble the the power behind what would become the first intifada uh, a decade later. Mm. So, so we have the lead up to the intifada. Um, let's, let's remind people what, what actually sets that off. Um, so it's, it is disputed what is the what counts as the beginning of the Intifada. Um, there's one uh, Palestinian scholar named uh, Mazam Kunsia who I um, learned a lot from, who has argued that it kicks off about a month and a half earlier than um, you'll see on Wikipedia, but the Generally, stories told is that there's a um, Israeli truck in the Gaza Strip that runs over a group of Palestinian workers, mm-hmm. um, kills four of them, and the funeral for them becomes a mass protest, and um, these spread throughout all of Gaza and the West Bank. Um, over the course of uh, December 1987, and suddenly there's you know, unprecedented, massive uh, civil disorder in the Palestinian territories. And um, in those first two months, it's not totally clear, you know, what what sort of the organi- organizational form or the leadership structure of this movement is like, um, and. You know, beginning in January, we start seeing the first communiques of a body um, calling itself the 
uh, unified national leadership of the uprising, the mm-hmm. uh, UNLU. Um, and at least on paper, this is made up of the the main parties of Palestinian resistance, uh, Fatah, the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, the Democratic Front for Liberation of Palestine, and um, the Palestine Palestinian Communist Party. Um, and so that's, that's sort of what is reported in the Israeli press, that this is a movement that is orchestrated by, you know, the PLO leadership in exile. And if we could find and arrest, deport, you know, whoever their key agents are in uh, the territories, then the uprising would stop because uh, that's who's uh, that's who the streets are taking leadership from. Mm-hmm. Turns out this is uh, a fantasy, and um, when it wasn't really the extent to which that was untrue was um, not really made clear to people outside of the struggle until a number of years later. Um, but in, in essence, what what took place was over those first um, five, six weeks of the struggle, ordinary people in villages and neighborhoods, all of the territories, um, organized local councils out of the women's committees and labor unions and um, the local party offices, um, where basically everyone in the neighborhood gets together and and that uh, council is the... Um, is the form in which you decide things like um, who's going to, who's going to maintain the barricades to keep out um, the Israeli military. How are we going to get food? How are we going to make sure um, our kids have, have school to go to? Cause they closed down all the schools in um, response to this. Um, and then each of those, um, those councils are um, popular committees as they're um, referred to in, Palestinian parlance um, would then send a delegate to a council of you know their region or their whole city, mm-hmm. um, and so it was a federated structure from these directly democratic community institutions at the grassroots level on up to this secretive body um, called the UNLU, um, which was operating on a national scale, and its function really was just to coordinate um, political action to make sure that um, the general strike days and the days of uh, protest were uh, happening on the same day throughout all the territories. Um, But, you know, all the initiative of of how to carry out the struggle was, um, was on a, on a local basis. And, and so it was, it was never known to anyone um, who was at the highest levels of, this structure and they'd have to rotate people all the time because folks would get arrested and, um, or need to go underground, things like that. Um, but you knew that you kind of put forward an idea with, with your delegate to the, uh, the next scale of the council. Sometimes it would end up in the communique with, um, plans of action for, basically the whole society that would be distributed as leaflets um, all, all over the place. So we have the, we have the Intifada really pushing back 
Um, we uh, this happens under largely labor government in the eighties. Um, Yitzhak Rabin, famously the defense minister at the time, um, and uh, you see, you start seeing, you know a real rightward shift in Israeli politics. I mean, it'll culminate, I think, probably in, in a bunch of events. And the development of, um, just before this, I mean, you had the beginnings of the Kahanist movement. So let's let's get, uh, get into the Kahanist movement. Um, a weird claim to, to, to my own family history is I am a distant relative of Mir Kahan, which is a very weird thing. Um, uh, I am like a, about fourth cousin. Um, okay. I, I'm not even. I'm not even Ashkenazi myself. I'm. I'm. I, I'm Sephardic. But, but yeah. Um, it's it's a strange, strange uh, relationship there. But um, we should we should talk about the like the beginnings of the of the JDL and the Kahanas movement and and you know because that's really. You know that's beginning to happen. I think almost simultaneously to the Intifada. Uh, I'm so trying to figure out a way to like address this in the chronology is a little bit difficult. But um, wh- when does this new far right start developing? Um, and you know what role did Mir Kahana play in that? Well, so um, he himself comes to the United States. It's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it's not in the same way an outgrowth of Likud or revisionist Zionism. Um, and his, um, you know, his, his main interventions, Israeli politics, um, actually come in the years in the lead up to the first Intifada. He's elected to the, um, the Knesset in, 1984, um, and then is barred from re-election in 1988. It's just the, um, you know, we're in well into the, the thick of, of the Intifada at that point. And so I think there's, I think we need to think of Kahanism and um, the Israeli right as things that have only fused together in more recent years for, you know, Likud voters in the 1980s, a person like America Han was um, a terrifying extremist who was going to blow up Israeli society, Mm -hmm. help make a a theocracy. And, um, you know, even, when, when he would speak in uh, the Knesset, even all the right-wing members would get up and leave. Um, and, and so I think it's illustrative of how, um, how extreme even for the Israeli hard right he was. And, um, you know, in, over the course of the Intifada, I think, and he starts building um, his movement, starts building more uh, connections with um, 
other parts of the Israeli right that are obsessed about, particularly about the um, willingness of the labor government to engage in peace talks with the PLO. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the thing that r- radicalizes them against the Israeli government, not just advocating for it to you know, carry out um, policies of ethnic cleansing, but um, you know, made it clear to them that for, in lots of ways, their most immediate enemy is um, those who are in power in the Israeli state currently. Um, and so um, Yitzhak Rabin, who you mentioned previously, was the defense minister during the Intifada, you know, someone who was um, the architect of just horrific um, brutality and repression. When they, when they ran out of jail space to be locking up um, kids for throwing rocks at tanks. Um, you know, Rabin was the one who gave the order to just go break their arms and legs. Um, and and that's what he's known for in Palestinian society. What he's known for in Israeli society is being um, the peacemaker because you know, it's in sort of a only Nixon could go to China sort of way. Um, he's the one who has the the standing um, in Israeli politics to you know, not be seen as a, a pushover for, for Arafat and the, and the PLO, um, but who can communicate the reality that Israel's standing internationally requires it to um, negotiate a political solution to um, a crisis or a, a problem that they've been thus far been trying to resolve with uh, bullets and clubs. Um, and and so that gives us the Oslo Accords, um, which were you know, a, a framework for um, moving towards passing independence, uh, a, a two-state solution. Um, and in the aftermath of this, uh, Rabin himself is assassinated by uh, a member of the Israeli far right um, who... Uh, I do not believe was himself a, a member of the JDL, the Jewish Defense League, or of Kach, the uh, that's Kahana's uh, movement organization. But um, they all these folks knew each other. They were in the same political circles and uh, same currents. And and so this this extremist wing of the Israeli right is um, a lot of ways a reaction to the um, the peace talks and. Um, and, and I think the, the sort of souring of the broader Israeli right on the peace talks is, is part of what was able to let them look back and think, oh, maybe those, those, uh, crazy genocidal extremists weren't, weren't wrong about everything if they were right about this. Well, I mean, this, uh, this merger, I think does you know, take a while. Um, one of the things that I, I always find interesting about it is that there is, to some degree, um, This is not in your article so much, but there's also uh, an inter-Jewish ethnic 
representation thing mm-hmm. here because the uh despite what a lot of people would think um a lot of the israeli far right is not hasidic i mean it's not well it's not hasidic either but um it's not um uh, ashkenazi it uh, it's it's religious zionist uh and a lot of it is also uh, mizrahi and sephardic um which I think throws some people off. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, how much do you think that matters? Is there any significance to that? What do you think drives that? Well, there's, there's a lot of significance to that. Um, and I, I, I think it'd be hard to like, assign rankings of, uh, you know, how much causal power each of the different factors we might attribute that to. Um, But I think some of the key ones are um, in, in sort of the ethnic class society of Israel. Um, Those of, those Israelis of European descent are wealthier. They're more well-educated. Um, and they identify more directly with um, a longer-term left-wing Zionist project on, on the whole. Um, and, you know, they are, they're also considerably more secular which is what was not as important of a fissure in previous decades, but is very important now. Um, and I think, I think there are some parallels to, for example, in the U S where um, those who are socially liberal in this country are oftentimes um, more likely to be college educated, have, uh, you know, belong to professional strata. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's one dimension to it. Another dimension is um, the relationship to um, Arabs and Arab society. So for lots of Ashkenazi Israelis, um, the, the sort of like, horrible things that can be attributed that they would attribute to Arab states or Arab people are a bit more abstract. Um, if their mm. context for this is the conflict with the Palestinians and then any military conflicts with, um, you know, Syria and Egypt and, and whatnot, many of which are, are more distant memory. Um, and for those who came from other parts of the Middle East and North Africa, um, many of them were themselves literally ethnically cleansed and um, driven out of their homes in Iraq or Syria or Algeria um, before coming to Israel. And, um, and so have a bit more of a, obnoxious um, relationship politically, socially, culturally with 
um, basically non-Jewish Arabs. And, you know, we're, we're much more willing to get on board with um, an extremist nationalist agenda in, in relation to those. Um, and then, you know, then there's, I guess I alluded to before, there's the religious element. Um, mm-hmm. The Israeli right um, did not used to be particularly religious, um, but in over the course of the last 20, 30 years, the um, religious component to the settler project um, and, um, you know, the, the broader right wing turn intensified and um, a lot more, a lot more Mizrahi Israelis are, um, are, are practicing uh, than, um, than their secular European cousins. Um, and I think a part of it is also just the um, bit of a underdog dynamic where mm-hmm. um, Ms. Rahis is a uh, marginalized minority in Israeli society were um, kind of a contested constituency among the more radical socialist left through organizations like the Israeli Black Panthers, um, as well as uh, resurgent right wing. And I think that's, that's a dynamic that happens all over the world that there's not necessary. There's no um, inherent left wing political content to social marginalization and lots of, um, Lots of ethnic minorities are, have been uh, sort of gobbled up politically by um, different kinds of different strains of, of the right. And uh, Israel's no different there. Well, I mean, Yigal Amir, you know, the assassin of Rabin, is famously a Mizrahi uh, mm-hmm. from a Yemeni family. Um, ben Gravir is. Uh, um, He's Kurdish. Yeah, I was about to say he's 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 a Kurdish Jew. Um, so yeah, um, uh, you know when I think about like of the of the different far right factions and and one of the things that's so hard to uh, talk about today is how many different far right factions yeah. there are. Um, there's quite a bit. Like Abdur Liebman now, who's actually in opposition to the current government, but is a different far right faction. But Liebman's one of the few people I think is actually one of the leader of one of these groups is actually uh, an Ashkenazi. Um, Now, I find interesting to kind of simultaneously as we have this buildup of the of the of the JDL and and the Khanist, we also have a, a kind of new wing of the. Um, Israeli left, which you get Ian Pepe and Benny Morris. So I think, you know, I think Morris's book comes out, out in 88, actually, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, who are um, you know, kind of come out of a, of a labor Zionist background, but break from it and you know, start, start uh you know, talking about the end of Israeli innocence and maybe um, 
calling for something like what Buber wanted way back, you know, in the twenties, um, uh, you know, a secular binational state. Um, what do you think prompts this, you know? Well, for that group, um, of academic historians, it was the simple fact of the opening of the classified archives from mm-hmm. 1948. And so there was this prevailing official story um, about what had happened in 1948 that, you know, this is what the government told us, this was taught in schools. Um, but when this, and these folks are, when you know historians first started to be able to look at primary source material, it became pretty obvious that most of the uh, main components of that narrative were nonsense. Um, you know, one, one of the key ones is this sort of uh, David and Goliath version of events, where um, a beleaguered Israeli movement is surrounded by all sides by enemies, but despite incredible odds, manages to defeat them and survive. Um, but when these historians start digging into um, the actual you know, Israeli military documents from then, it's um, it becomes pretty clear that they were, they were definitely always going to win um, in terms of the military armaments they had from the Soviets, from Czechoslovakia, um, there's their, the extent of their relative um, military organization and numbers, um, you know, that, that David and Goliath story was um, pure mythology. Um, for the purposes of the Palestinian question, mm-hmm. the main one has to do with the Nakba itself, um, why it happened. And, um, you know, the, the pre- previously the, the narrative had been that Palestinians left because Arab military leadership told them to leave so they'd be out of the way so that they could kill all the Jews. Um, But people like Morris and Pape were uncovering clear evidence that um, the leadership of the Haganah and um, basically the whole Zionist project uh, in the person of Ben Gurion, was ordering systematic expulsion. That this was a state-building project rooted in dependent on uh, ethnic cleansing, uh, and so it 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 forced a reframing of the expulsions as not you know, an unfortunate side effect that um, was the fault of somebody else anyway. Um, but you know, functionally a sort of original sin for, for the Israeli state. Um, now, Elon Pape, who's one of these historians, is uh, um, on the radical left and the uh, anti-statist uh, you know, socialist left and advocates uh, a single democratic state for all people as the only only political solution that can sort of undo these historic harms. Um, but Benny Morris, who's the most central of these historians, is um, it's pretty different politics. And um, I, I think of him as sort of like a, a politically 
amoral figure who mm-hmm. um who thinks on the long term where you know individual atrocities um don't register as much and uh you know he, he's more he's more on the side of expulsions were necessary we had to do them and maybe we'll have to do them again i mean um you know, I've read I've read Har- and Haritz, uh, you know, some interesting criticisms of, of Morris's position that basically claimed that his political advocacy, particularly after 2000, uh, is really hard to square with his, uh, with his historical research, particularly before 2000. Um, so it's, um, I think uh, Avi Shavit is, uh, our, has said a lot about that. But um, that's you know I I find that I find that interesting to to sort of sit with. Um, I know Morris has also uh, been critical of like uh, Norman Finkelstein, um, and he's also um, criticized uh, Pepe more than once, I believe. Um, so it's it's an interesting scenario where you know the key figure um is only is only a key figure scholarly but his politics seem to be yeah you're right they seem totally amoral (laughs) like are just like ah you know these things happen atrocities happen we're not different but what you gotta do this is what states do basically it's what it kind of kind of the the gist i get from him Um, right he has a it was us or them uh, mentality. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you do bring out some interesting things. Uh, one, I don't, I don't think people really know this, but until Truman forces, uh, uh, forces the U S to recognize Israel when the, when the, uh, the, the joint chiefs didn't want to. And, mm-hmm. um, which I don't think is usually that well known, or that the Soviets played a pretty big role in uh, in the establishment of the state of Israel, uh, and were actually in some ways more. And Stalin was probably more influential than the U.S. was. Definitely. Um, um, which uh, I think confuses people because I think most people kind of come to this between you know, um, the 1967 war and the 1987 Intifada where the Soviets are clearly on the side of the Palestinians, but largely for kind of real politic reasons, honestly. Um, and also by 1987, they're barely relevant anyway. Um, and so these are all, I think, you know, one of the things I really liked about your article is you, uh, contextualize on that. That gets us to let, let's get to the 2000s because, um, as I don't know how old you are, that's when I became uh, a follower of Israeli politics. Um, uh, so I, I remember feeling like, oh, wow, uh, labor, you know, labor Zionism is dead, the Kabbalisms are dead, um, and 
Likud has split into old, you know, old Likud, which is Kadima, which doesn't really matter anymore, <laughs> um, and and new Likud, which is all over the place politically, and um, but and I also remember thinking uh, in the two thousands, we're not going to get any worse than Ariel Sharon. What could possibly go worse than that? Um, and uh, you, you know, you, unfortunately, we have to like widely smile at the naivete of that time. Can always but, get worse. <laughs> definitely can get worse. Um, so in the in the two thousands, you have really the beginning of a Kahana revival. Um, you have, um, I mean, labor is decimated. Um, you know, uh, I mean, we're after the second intifada, so like, what, what all goes wrong <laughs> for everybody? I mean, I guess we kind of, you know, the main event of the '90s for me is I think we have to talk about the the, the beginning of the shift that the assassination of Rabin indicates, but and the, like the 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 uh, the Knesset being so worried about um, someone actually, for example, for, for uh, pardoning uh, Yagal Amir, that like they make it illegal to do so. Like you just and that's got to be a very bad sign that like. Yeah. Uh, there's literally political parties talking about pardoning and the assassin of a prime minister. Like, so um, I guess we probably, before we get to that, I guess I, we should mention the Ahub Barak uh, almost settlement that goes south and, you know, why it goes south. I, I guess we have to cover that, but um what, what what happened between uh, Yasha Arafat and Ahub Barak before we get to how bad things go go in the odds? Well, I mean, those are obviously contest, hotly contested events. Um, mm-hmm. I I think personally that um, you know both both of these um, negotiating parties are not just negotiating with the person across the table, um, but with their own civil societies. What and they can kind of marshal democratic support for. Um, and, you know, the, sh- the short version is that at, at no point has um, actual Palestinian independence ever been on offer. Um, you know, there's been uh, various um, deals put forward that would entail, um, you know, setting up the Palestinian territories as uh, a demilitarized, um, self-managing political entity that lacks um all of the key pieces of political sovereignty that you know, define international relations for, uh, for modern states. And um, I think that, you know, the fact that those are the best things that 
the American negotiators and um, Israeli leadership were able to come up with is itself. Um, it's pretty damning. It's, it's damning of the process itself. Mm-hmm. Um, Rashid Khalidi wrote a really good book. What is it called? Um, it's called Brokers of Deceit. That is about mm-hmm. the American involvement in the peace process. And I think he makes a very persuasive case that, um, you know, the, the U.S. was functionally a bad faith actor through the whole process, that um, their sole diplomatic function in the course of this was uh, to provide political color, cover for um, indefinite Israeli rule. Mm-hmm. And that you know, some of these um, unswallowable deals that were made on offer were you know, strategic ones to um, put forward something that no Palestinian leader would ever be able to accept um, and nor should they ever accept um, in order to be able to turn around and say, oh, like, we can't, can't actually negotiate with these people. What, what are you supposed to do? Um, and, you know, I think, I think there was like, there were structural problems baked into the Oslo Accords from the get go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having, having no, um, no, no timelines, no means of, um, enforcing Israeli withdrawal, except, um, when the Israeli state wanted to, um, and, you know, just like accepting um, the Israeli presence as a status quo that, you know, no other, no other military occupation is, um, you know, would not be part of, part of the equation. Um, and so, you know, th- this was this was a major conflict in Palestinian society at the time. So, you know, sh- what, how do we relate to this um offer of peace talks and there were a lot of people at the time who were, who argued that um this was a uh, a poisoned offer that was not gonna um it was, it was never going to bring independence and i, th- I think a, a painful conclusion from all this is that those folks were were right that the um the national movement the plo got played through the process yeah, um, and I guess the other key event we have to remember, uh, remember from the 1990s is um, the uh, Baruch Goldstein uh, massacre at Hebron, um, which more or less criminalizes the, uh, the colonist movement. But um, as we mentioned, uh, to go back to the, the aughts, I mean, you know, Barak kind of... Uh, unceremoniously loses in, in the seeming even more, I mean, we talked about the rightward shift of the seventies when you have the even more rightward shift of the early aughts. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Ariel Sharon comes to, to power and you, um, you have this very right seeming um, Israeli, uh, you know, Israeli government and 
we also have, uh, you know, uh, the events between 2001 and 2006 and in Israel and Palestine, it's unbelievably important for where things are now, it seems to me. But um, I don't know how you feel about that. So, well, I think in a lot of ways, um, it was the second intifada that that killed labor mm-hmm. and um, sort of undermined the peace camp in Israel politically. Um, and you know the the whole point of the second intifada was to attempt to be that enforcement on the on Oslo that was not baked into it from the get go. You know, obvious to um, to Palestinians that that uh, independence was not actually around the corner and uh, we need to force the issue but um, what what they got was the exact opposite um, and I think differently from the first intifada which was more spontaneous and you know a mass movement, um, where events proceed, but it's not always clear who uh, who is responsible for them. You know, the second they thought it was much more politically centralized as an as an armed struggle. It was necessarily carried out by uh, a much smaller slice of Palestinian society, um, and and so kind of the decision making behind it was was a more select group of Palestinian resistance leaders. And I think um, in hindsight from that is that theirs was a, a grave miscalculation of um, what the response would be politically from, from Israelis. And, um, you know, I honestly don't see how, how any solution, any, any outcome other than a hard right turn, uh, in you know, uh, under the banner of security, could have come about from that. Um, so I, th- I think that was a that was a backslide in both directions. It also meant the uh, the political ascendancy of the religious right on the Palestinian side should not previously been the case. Uh, We've we've not talked about Hamas at all, but uh, yeah, but um, you know, mm -hmm. um, passing the Islamic Jihad did play a role, but they were marginal. And in those years, uh, Hamas was still holding to a line of political quietism. um, Like uh, was, Broadly, the position of chapters of the Muslim Brotherhood um, and basically just like did not participate at all. Their position was you know, we sort of um, morally demonstrate a um, you know, kind of like the righteousness of, uh, of Islam and Palestinian identity and that, that right. uh, the path rather than rather than political struggle. Um, but in the second intifada, they were they played like leading roles in the 
Yeah, you know, I'm sure. Well, I mean, in Gaza, they they basically set up a dual power regime, honestly, um, which I think is, you know, I, I always tell people like, yeah, they've been building, I mean, they've been doing it partly with, ironically, with Israeli money, but um, like going all the way back to the 70s. But... Uh, well, Hamas was, Hamas was formed in the late 80s. I think they were they right. They're uh, the precursor organization um, uh, is a charity. Uh, it's kind of from the 60s. But but yes, the formerly Hamas as a political movement does not start until the 80s. Um, but they're, you know, the, the, the relationship to the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt is actually quite, quite interesting because they, in some ways... Uh, adopt the same tactics, but are actually in many ways more successful faster than, than mm-hmm. the Brotherhood was in uh, in Egypt. Um, so, you know, by by the early aughts, they they seem like a real counterpower. You know, um, particularly after the Second Intifada. Uh, and I think it's important for people, yeah, like you said, to notice that, that there's a very Secular nature to the first intifada to the second intifada, it's a much more mixed movement. Mm-hmm. Um, um, then you have, you know, in some ways, the last gasp of what's going to turn out to be a dying right wing, which is uh, um, the the uh. <sighs> the Sharon ring of Likud, which would eventually become Kadima and, and, uh, that was somewhat conciliatory to, uh, labor. I mean, at least early on, um, uh, Sharon also had a couple issues. Seems like for a second, he might, you know, try to Nixon to China things with the Palestinians. Uh, but, um, it talks about unilateral disengagement, and in 2003, endorses a roadmap for peace, uh, which was agreed upon by the EU, the United States, and Russia. Um, he he nominally opens dialogue with Mahmoud Abbas, but you know um, this uh, this doesn't really. I mean. This actually creates, in some ways, the beginnings of a real political ascendancy of Benjamin Netanyahu. Oh. Um, so, you know, what do you think is going on there? You know, within the Likud camp. Within the Likud, like uh, you, you have also like we, you have this proliferation of right wing parties. Like you start having like. Um, these various, uh, I mean, there's multiple religious Zionist parties now, um, mm-hmm. and that's sometimes hard to explain, but I'm like, yeah, there's a Sephardic one, and there's a Maserati one, and there's, you know, um, <laughs> they're both ethnic and religious markers being tied into this, and these groups were tiny, tiny, tiny before the odds. so, yeah. Well, I think when you have um, political coalitions break or lose Mm -hmm. substantial chunks of their constituencies you um you're basically creating lots of 
political opportunity for um, organizations and parties that want to step into that electoral space. And one of the really interesting things about you know, parliamentary systems that in this country we have no experience of is that um, it creates lots of space for small parties to um, make make real moves. Uh, I mean, they have they have proportional representation in Israel, and um, when there's kind of blood in the water politically. Um, new factions are going to put forward their platforms and, uh, and see what happens. And then they can assemble the coalitions after the votes are in. Um, and I think the expansion of right wing parties in Israel, um, is a symptom of their political fractiousness and, you know, differences, um, but it's also a symptom of their march forward and the uh, kind of like seizure of, of political space, um, as things were, you know, in such uh, shifting turmoil in, in the two thousands. Well, um, I mean, yeah, you have the nominal leader of a party resign from his own party and start a new one, like, um, that that those kinds of events usually are an indication of pretty strong political instability. But the, I mean, what Kadima seems to have ultimately done is finish killing labor. Um, yeah. Ironically, um, so uh, you know, and you did have uh, some. I mean, even even in the Kadima government back when. Uh, Ehud Omar was running things for the brief little bit that he did. Um, you, st- you had uh, like the Shahs, which for the for people who don't know, that's a, that's a, a Sephardic religious party uh, in, you know, coalition of the government. Um, so um, starting with the rise of, of Netanyahu, it, it really does seem like, the only movement is to the right. And honestly, that a lot of younger, more left-minded individuals start leaving the country. Um, so uh, there was, I, was, I sometimes think this is overstated, but there, there was a, a, a fair number of young secular Israelis going back to Germany and the United States. So this happens as well. Um, and now a lot of people, I think, overblame the rise of the right on all the Russian immigration. Um, I think that's probably strongly overstated. But I don't know what your opinion is on that. Well, the other generational piece mm-hmm. that I think is really crucial is that for the young people coming of age in, you know, in the Second Intifada or this right-wing turn afterwards, um, they're more right-wing than their parents. Yeah. um, That, that was the, that was the feature of Israeli politics that was, um, can be really clear in the, like the early 20 teens, 
when yeah, uh, that was the window when I was most um, politically active in an ongoing way and passing solidarity. And um, that, that was a piece that was looked like writing on the wall for me that, you know, everywhere else, at least in the Western world, you have sort of this uh, progressive slash reactionary split on generational lines where the old people on their way out are, are the most right wing. And there's some prospect for um, uh, a left wing future, or at least a, a liberal future um, a was- or two down the road. But for, for Israelis, you know, the under 30s are, you know, we're basically turning fascist. And um, I think that the kind of, has been uh, a, a key indicator for for where things are at now. Well, I think this is a. Oh, I mean, it's. Um, you know, um, I mean, Lahava has a lot of youth members and. Uh, I was in in Egypt from 2015 to 2017, and actually, to me, the whole Levant seems more right wing than it probably was. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but uh, uh, and of course, when I was so being nearby, and um, I knew a whole lot of people who were going back and forth. Uh, between Palestine and Egypt, usually waiting in the in the Egyptian airport for the one or two days a year that they could get into Gaza, because um, there's specific you know specific times and people would just be waiting. You, know, you just meet people waiting in the in the in the Cairo airport when you just talk to them. Um, It, it did seem like uh, things were, incredi- were were going incredibly right wing in in uh, amongst Israeli youth, and uh, if 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 you were a left wing Israeli youth, you were getting out of the country, mm-hmm. like, um, and so that's been that definitely seems to be be the trend. Um, uh, I mean, one of the things that you're you know, to kind of get it, to get up to the current, I, I think a lot of people with, you know, when Netanyahu lost for a little while, um, a lot of people were, were maybe hopeful, but recent um, polling is like uh, 60% of Israel, uh, Israelis believe that uh, ethnic segregation is needed. So like it's, it's a majority position now. Um, and it seems to be even more popular amongst the young than the old. Um, so, you know, um, how do you think this happened? I mean, we haven't really talked about, you know, what happened on, in, in 2006 and the kind of mini civil war in Palestine. So, um, so I guess we do have to cover that, but. I mean, you know, we're going through a whole lot of history fast here, but um, um, 
What do you think happened in both countries? I mean, to me, what to understand what's happened on the Palestinian side is is in some ways easier for me to, to than to understand what's happened on the Israeli side, even though I'm a Jew. Um, and so, you know, I kind of get, you know, I kind of get why Hamas was able to, particularly in Gaza, uh, gain legitimacy because you know they successfully offered healthcare. <laughs> and schooling and I, I, I laugh but I mean it's true like and they got yeah. that from the brotherhood that's a brotherhood strategy um and I, I actually you know even as early as 2014 I was arguing that like ironically the best people who've done um dual power strategy since the Bolsheviks are like Hezbollah and Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood yeah but but um so I get how they became more popular um, and particularly how the PLO and Fatah seemed particularly unpopular in Gaza. Um, but it's, it, it is kind of hard for me to entirely understand how, how outright Jewish fascist movements like Lahava became really predominant amongst the young. That's, I don't know. I mean, that's the that's a million dollar question. I think, I think part of it is things they did right, mm-hmm. and part of it is things their opponents did wrong or didn't do. Okay. And um, you know, when these, especially the the street movements started getting organized in the early twenty teens. Mm-hmm. Um, my my read is that there was a period where their presence, like their ability to be out in the open on the streets, is something that could have been contested. And um, you know, I th- I think it's like actually a really important case study for anti fascism of what can build steam, mm-hmm. especially in that kind of political climate. If the most dangerous actors are not physically confronted when they come out in the open and, you know, uh, harass and um, attack people who are part of their target populations. Um and, you know, there's just like lots of, there's all the shitty aspects for, for teen culture all over the place that can um, be strategically funneled into these kinds of political projects. Um, and I think the, the organizers of groups like Lahava sort of had their um, finger on that pulse really well. And um, we're, we're able to manipulate that. But, you know, I mean, the, these things are also just part of uh, the, those, those organizations are also symptomatic of these um, bigger picture right wing shifts, um, which is not something you can sort of lay at the feet of any particular people. But what's really frightening is how. Um, some of these players were able to 
exploit those broader reactionary turns to inject um, an extremist politics into into the mainstream. And um, that's that's the kind of thing that I think needed to be snuffed out in the cradle um, that was allowed to uh, gather momentum. Um, and now if you try to you know, do a counter demonstration against um, fascists in Israel, you, you are, you know, you're, you're playing with your life. Um, I think that's just going to get more dangerous with every, with every passing week. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's a, it was a dismal, uh, dismal slide. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me to think about how um, uh, you know, for example, Netanyahu is not popular at this very at this particular very second. I mean, who knows how this will play out ultimately? Um, but what when people ask me about well, what does that mean about the future in the left in Israel? And I'm like, I have no idea because some of the people who may be opposing him may be. Well, to the right of Ben Gravir. Um, and it's hard for me to know, uh, you know, um, there's all of like one left, left-wing Knesset member left. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, it's, it's hard for me to know where, where this is going to go, Um for the same reasons that you indicate, um, Kahanis, there's Kahanis style politics in multiple parties and multiple groups on the Israeli right. There are, um, the Haradi are, uh, for those of you, uh, for those of you who aren't as familiar with, uh, um, Jewish stuff, uh, the ultra Orthodox, um, are increasingly politicized and a larger uh, function of society, but so is the secular right. Now that's what, you know, when people talk about this shift, y- yes, there's a, re- there's a religious right-wing movement um, in Israel. There's also a secular right-wing movement in Israel. Um, and even in the, you know, the opposition to the weird coalition that briefly dethroned, Netanyahu, those were also right wingers. They're just different ones. So it was, it, it 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 seems very hard to see, even if you know current Likud falls out of favor, what's going to replace it? Um, and it could e- it could easily be worse. Um, similarly, and you know, uh, to, to flip back to the specifically to the to the Gazan side here, um, Gaza hasn't, you know, I, I have pointed out one of the reasons why I'm so, I'm so worried about, uh, you know, at minimum ethnic cleansing at maximum genocide, um, in Gaza is that Gaza's also been street, even forced out of labor, which means that, you know, even, <sighs> How do you say this? I'm the capitalism. The only thing worse than being exploited is not being like, yeah, 
Um, because they have been kind of, you know, it's like Gaza has been rendered almost an entirely a surplus population that usually when that happens, historically speaking, in these kinds of situations, uh, part of that removal of even from the labor pool is so that you can't integrate into society, form bonds, and thus turn people to your side. Like, that's part of the aim of that. And so... You know, Gaza, you know, Gaza's been cut off from Israeli society now for <clears throat> since 2007, really. Um, there hasn't been an election. Uh, uh, getting in and out of Gaza is just harder and harder and harder to do, you know, um, particularly after 2014, you know, after the Salin Intifada, it's basically like what there's one road, there's two roads in and that's it. Um, or maybe even one road in. Can't remember, but there's not there, there's not a lot of ways in the Gaza right now. Um, so, um, it seems almost set up to encourage uh, uh, Hamas to take a desperate measure and then trigger what now seems to have happened. Although I do find it interesting that the boots on the ground war have been seemingly delayed. Uh, and, but it also looks like uh, that Netanyahu is going to start claiming sections of northern Gaza for settlers. So um, it's hard to see how any good's going to come even of this truce. I know, I know we've skipped 10 years effectively, but the Netanyahu years are all bad. Just, they just, are all it, bad. It's just and all it's just bad. Like, well, I mean, the thing that, the thing that he did, mm. I think it was most sort of politically poisonous for all this is um, recognizing that his political fortunes rested with coalition with, you know, those um, various uh, crops of new far right wing parties that you, know, you were talking about before. Yeah. I mean, you know, back when, uh, uh, Abdor Liebman was in government and we were talking about, yeah, he's in opposition right now, but <laughs> he's terrifying. So, it was like, oh, like, so I'm like, okay, so we have some right wingers who are terrifying in opposition, and then, but you got Bim Gravier who's just in the different type of, of, uh, far rightist. It's, it's like, so I can pick between my brown shirts and my black shirts, and, and I mean, like, Am I supposed to feel good about that? That the brown shirts are now in opposition to the black shirts? I don't know. Um, yeah. You know, and, to make a very depressing analogy. You know, as far as like how this is going to play out, Netanyahu is a he's a slippery bastard, and he's you know he's the most successful. Israeli politician ever. No one's been able to weather what he has for as long as he has. Um, And, you know, I think he knows that the sort of the broad, the Israeli public in terms of basic um, political questions are going to be in his camp even if he himself you know, screwed up big time and 
is deeply unpopular. And so I think he needs to try to navigate the, the crisis such that the, the party and the broader political project remains tied to him personally, such that it sort of rises and falls with him. And that's the only, that's also the only scenario that I could see that would entail, um, you know, his unpopularity politically damaging his coalition and kind of like the future of his project. That That's maybe the scenario where, um, yeah, yeah, your Lapid or someone else might be able to displace him for in favor of a more center right, center left um, coalition of some sorts. Um, but that that just seems so unlikely. Um, I think a much more plausible scenario is either um, he's able to stay on top or he's shunted aside. Um, by his coalition, trying to like preserve what they have going on um, in favor of some other far right figure, and you know that can that could get into super dangerous territory really quickly. Yeah, this is we don't want Abor Liebman and Big and uh, Ben Gravier being on the same side. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. I, I, I guess this brings us to, you know, things have shifted a little bit since you published this this article. And one of the reasons why I've been so hesitant to talk about uh, Palestine and Israeli stuff recently is also I've been very careful to limit myself to things that I can say are true at a given day. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and like lately I'm like, uh, <sighs> Tomorrow we may be back at war. We may not be. Flip a coin. I have no idea. Like, um, this truce is temporary, clearly, but how temporarily is is, un, is unclear. And I don't. I'm not even sure that I entirely understand the Israeli government's logic right now, except yeah. that maybe they really weren't ready to go in boots on the ground into Gaza, um, or maybe that. Uh, you know, Russia and and uh, China have been, frankly, somewhat hands off on on uh, Israel because of Netanyahu's ability to play the great powers off of each other. He's actually very good at that. Um, but that the international pressure is too high, um, and there are too many other Russian and and Chinese allies who. Uh, but then again, it's hard. It's hard for me to even say that because if you look at the current coalitions right now, and um, like Saudi Arabia sitting it out, and Qatar is on the side of peace, it's like or Qatar and and Qatar and Egypt being aligned on anything almost never happens. So, like for those of you who don't understand, is is uh, Middle Eastern politics. It's complicated, um, uh, and so it's it's hard for me to to say what's going to happen there. Um, and it also seems to me that the one thing that you can say, and this is actually somewhat astounding, even though 
uh, there are more Christian Zionists in America in the United States than there are Jews on the planet, um, which is uh, something I don't think a lot of people fully comprehend. Um, that fifty six percent of Republicans, you know, are are beginning to become slightly sympathetic to Palestinians in response to what Israel's done, and that's despite the fact that you know in the immediate aftermath of um, of October fifth, um, that you know, somebody was saying to me that this was like a post nine eleven moment. And I was like, yeah, and yet somehow Israel seems to have, in the eyes of the international community, uh, squandered it faster than the United States did after nine eleven, which is actually somewhat impressive. <laughs> You know, and considering, um, uh, what do what you know? What do you make of that? I mean, like the fact that you know, I, I am not saying that everyone uh, on on the GOP side who is questioning the Israel narrative is necessarily a good person or or. Are, are doing it for noble reasons. I'm, I'm sure a couple of them are anti-Semites, but um, I, I don't think most of them are. Um, and seeing Norm Finkelstein going on Candace's Owens show since your article came out was like a, what world am I in? <laughs> um, something has definitely changed in the United States. Um, also, um, the largest Jewish community in the world is gener- is generationally divided on this. And for those of you who don't know where the largest Jewish community in the world actually is, it's in the U.S. Um, there's more Jews in America than there are even in Israel. So um, while, you know, I think you could probably say uh, a slim majority of, of uh, U.S. Jews are or Zionists, it's a, it's an it's an increasingly slim majority. Mm-hmm. Um, how how does this change the situation? Because it does seem hopeless. I mean, like from the internal to to Israel itself, it does seem hopeless. And yet, it's hard for me to imagine that um, even the Jewish community in the United States is going to be as forgiving of 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 Israeli actions in the future if this if this current political trajectory is headed where it's headed. And does that matter? Like, that's what I, I, I currently, I mean, that last bit, I don't know. Does it matter what the U.S. Jewish community thinks? Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, in some ways this has been the sort of same thing as previous yeah. um, Israeli campaigns in Gaza have achieved which is they induce major shifts in American public opinion on this question. But they don't um, seem to change anything in the Levant. But yeah, it's not, it's not clear what the, the relationship between that and anything about the future situation that um, you know, can be affected. I think we have to try to make it matter. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's kind of like the the function of the solidarity movement is to try to 
um, channel and turn those that kind of sea change in public opinion into some kind of um, political result. Um, but I'm, I mean, I'm increasingly convinced that um, we need to think of solutions to the conflict being externally imposed on Israel. I, I don't think there's going to be, um, you know, a peace camp coalition that wins any elections ever again in Israeli society. Um, and you know, outside of the United States, there've been a number of other interesting um, political steps taken, you know, multiple countries, Latin America, um, I think if I remember correctly, South Africa as well, expelling Israel's ambassadors from their country, withdrawing their own. Um, and yeah, Bolivia, South, uh, South Africa, uh, um, I, maybe a few more since then, but I mean, conversely though, the, 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 the allegiance actually near to Israel, such as like Saudi Arabia, um, the situation with 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 China and Russia seem a little harder to navigate because mm-hmm. Israel has. Well, I mean, one of the reasons why Netanyahu has been so slippery and successful is he's been able to play Russia, China, and the U.S. off of each other in regards to to how they deal with Palestinian interest. And even today that seems, you know, uh, nominally Russia and China are friendly to Palestinian interests, but they're not doing that much. I mean, China's position is on paper, the same as the U S is and right in practice, you know, not that different than not that different either (laughs) right um and uh russia's position is i think on paper better than china are the are the us's but uh putin and netanyahu do have a lot of agreements yeah um so it's it's uh although there are hopeful signs another thing that you mentioned in your article was the um uh, Modi uh, trying to cons- basically uh, um, uh, send migrant worker, uh, workers to <coughs> to Israel and the and all the major trade unions uh, stop that from happening. So, or declared um, they'd they'd fight it, right? So they've stopped it so far. It has not yet happened. Let me rephrase that. Um, uh, I shouldn't say stopped it from happening because who knows. But um, do we think we see a lot more stuff like this? Um, a lot. I mean, there seems to be a lot of uh, even in the United States, there's been somewhat successful direct action against like arms providers and whatnot. Um. 
Well, there've been there was the one um what's that, a week ago now mm-hmm. in Massachusetts. Um it's not clear to me they ever were able to shut anything down. Um You mean either. Those three are facing serious uh uh criminal sentences as a result. Um I mean and the other piece is like we we send we send Israel plenty of weaponry, but they're also significant arms and arms technology exporters themselves. Um, and for like lots of international relationships, the the arms dealing is run the other way. You know, like China has significant uh, arms trade deals with Israel, but it's, it's not because China's sending Israel weapons. It's their, they're buying the stuff that Israelis are testing out on, on Gaza, uh, proving that it works. And so there's, I guess there's two, there's just two directions that we need to throttle as, as a movement. Um, most obvious one is, you know, preventing anything from being sent over there to be deployed, uh, against Palestinians. But, um, I think, I think we need to have sort of, strategic targeting of um, kind of industries that are, that are flowing from Israel. And, and that, that's sort of like the fusion of BDS type work with, you know, more direct struggle against um, the state apparatus in, um, in this country. You know, it's like lots of people taking, we've taken action for years against like, their police departments training with the IDF or right. um, against uh, surveillance technologies being um, imported from Israel by you know, their, their local governments and um, things of that nature. So I, I feel like it might also be sort of a, a site of new solidarities proliferating new kinds of um, anti-state struggles in this country that, you know, will have ripple effects that constrain things politically for, for Israel. But it's, it's hard to see any of that um, being enough without, you know, major state actors um, internationally um, you know, taking punitive actions too. So on one hand, it seems clear to me that, um, when the UN Security Council uh, encouraged the temporary ceasefire against, you know, against the wishes of the IDF, that maybe, um, uh, maybe things, even in the United States, even under someone as stodgy and, and loyalist as Biden, um, have shifted uh, slightly. Um, at the same time, uh, I'm glad you bring that up about the Israeli arms industry, because one of my criticisms of, of prior iterations of BDS was like, well, uh, the entire world security apparatus wasn't tied into South Africa's apartheid the way that a lot of the world security apparatus, and even with powers who are nominally opposing each other, mm-hmm. like the United States and Russia, uh, are tied into the Israeli security establishment. And 
Um, it, it, yes, there's a real sense in which the, Israel is still seen by U.S. Uh, foreign policy as, you know, its outpost in, in the region. But, you know, there are costs to that. Um, and it, it's going to be very interesting to see where that all goes. I, I don't know. I... The, the last year the, I've talked about, you know, this this topic, I talked about it in 2020, right after, all, you know, the events in 2019. Um, I've talked about it a little bit after the situation in 2021, um, but it seems to me that uh, the most depressing thing about this is internationally – Things, you know, I can't. Well, Hamas is probably not the most popular group in the world right now. Um, I, the, the the general sentiment backing um, backing a, a free Palestine is probably bigger than it's been ever, ever, right? And yet. The facts on the ground feel more depressing than they've ever been. And that, for lack of a better term, dialectic concerns me. I don't want, you know, like, um, but it, maybe it is what's constraining the IDF right now and why this truce has been extended. I just don't know. I, I Like, I feel like I have so little understanding of what's going on on the ground on either the Gaza or the Israeli side right now. And, uh, you know, I know Palestinians and people from Israel, and I still can't figure it out. Um, and uh, it's hard for me to say if, like, maybe this will reverse the right-wing march of Israel, but I doubt it. Um, and I, like you, kind of think it will have to be <sighs> externally imposed somehow. Um, but, yeah, I'm with you on... I think it has gotten people to see the the extent to which popular opinion and state actors are decoupled in the world. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, it's um, indicative of how geriatric our democracy is, and um, but it's also, you know, it's also kind of like an indicator of how um, just, you know, the bourgeois dictatorship is not cut and dry either. You know, they need to manage that gap in a way that um, doesn't, doesn't expose them too much. And, and that's kind of the space that we have to, to push, um, you know, push the, foreign policy apparatus. Um, it's not a lot of wiggle room. Um, but I, th- I think this is also something that's been a wake up call for a lot of people about how, um, how undemocratic the U S state is, how, how insulated it is from, um, popular, popular opinion. Yeah. yeah. And particularly on, I mean, ironically, even given the, you know, the whole, founding fathers cult uh, that's in this country 
people missing that since the since even things like the Police Powers Act, which was actually supposed to limit the executive's ability to use, uh, you know, to do war policy without doing war policy, uh, it, it's become pretty clear that um, our legislative our legislative system is completely non-responsive and broken down. And our legislative system actually is the part of our democracy that's kind of not really democratic. Mm-hmm. So um, it kind of puts the – it exposes a lot of people to, to how little power they have over the foreign policy apparatus. And I, like you, actually think that's a good thing for people to realize, like – like you do need to understand that this is not something that you really control by voting. Um, you can control it. I mean, you can. I'm not saying you can't have an effect by voting, but um, if 80 percent of Democrats are are a you know um, are take relatively pro-Palestinian stances and yet it doesn't matter to the leadership of the Democratic Party, that does tell you something. Like, um, so... I think they also feel a little um, within the Democratic Party leadership, they feel politically invincible in relation to the party base because of the threat of Trump that you know, none of these voters are going to uh, countenance. I think they know that most uh, most Democrats are going to suck it up and vote for, for Biden and there's not going to be a primary. Um, but I don't know. It's been interesting to see. Um, as much as I would love for, for us to have a Lyndon Johnson moment with Joe Biden, I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I, I I agree with you, although it is interesting for me to think about like what are people in Dearborn, Michigan gonna do? And Great they question. probably won't vote for Trump, but I could see a whole lot of them not voting at all. Yeah. I mean there was but, a there was a big rally a couple weeks ago by um not just like random Palestine activists, but mm-hmm. Democratic elected officials in Michigan saying, Look, Biden, you gotta pull the plug on this or none of us are supporting you next year. And that, that is something that is something that could absolutely make the difference in him winning and losing, um, depending on how things shake out. And, and I think it like, uh, there's a cultural cold war, um, in, 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 in the Jewish world, honestly, over this stuff. And it might not be that cold for, for that long. Um, particularly with, you know, um, the amount of the amount of like right wing ca- counseling, actually, to, to use the appropriate words that they complain about it so much um, of of different student groups or whatever. And I never try. I, I don't focus on what college students do if if if. Uh, some 22 year olds are in are in diplomatic undiplomatic are silly in the way they express solidarity i'm not gonna lose sleep over it that's just me um you know um 
but uh, I think a lot of the, for example, what happened, you know, there's been a lot of backlash on college campuses from from law firms and, and people power, which they haven't seen on other things. And I think it has been kind of a wake up call about a generational difference in in all this. Um, all that said, uh, I like I the last time I talked about the Israeli Palestinian conflict that I, I kind of had a similar um, response is I feel better about the world, but as far as how I actually feel like things are going to go for the Palestinians, I, I don't have a whole lot of hope. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I wish I did. Um, Thank you so much. I've had you for on for two hours, Mason. Um, we didn't go into all of your article. I mean, we went through a, an enormous amount of history, but you actually go into a lot of the the more recent history in more detail. Um, and uh, I think um, people would do well to read the article. It's going to be linked in the show notes. Um Normally, uh, well, I'll just leave it at that. Um, so people should definitely check out your work at Strange Matters and read it. And uh, it's one of int- I, I want to say it's one of the more thorough pieces I've seen on this uh, shift in Israeli politics. And I haven't seen a whole lot that goes into this shift from both the Israeli and Palestinian side, other than your piece. Um, there's been a lot of finally, I mean, even Vox of all places has been doing decent explainers on, on how we got to pal- like to the current situation in Palestinian politics, which again, just tells you when, when I am like, yeah, what giving, an indicator. <laughs> yeah, if I'm giving Vox credit for doing anything, you know, like popular opinion has shifted, but, uh, um, I, I did like your your contextualizations. There's stuff I learned about um, uh, specific things um, in, in in marginal right wing Israeli politics that I was not even that aware of, and I actually do keep up with Israeli politics. So it's although I admit in the last since about. Since about 2018, I I like dread opening up her arts in English or Hebrew because yeah. it's just it's just yeah. like more bad news. <laughs> um, it's like ah, well, uh, I'm gonna start missing Ariel Sharon. That's that's not a good thing. That's just not a good thing. All right, um, so check out your article. Is there anything else you'd like to plug? Well, I just. Uh... I think they're pretty much everywhere, at least in this country. Things are popping off locally mm-hmm. every week. And, you know, even if you're not sure what you're doing or why, um, it, it can't hurt to drop in. A lot of these are just relatively small groups of um, committed people trying to do what they can in horrible times. And um, it means a lot to have another warm body at the at the front with them so just yeah. encourage folks to figure out what's um what's being planned in in your community and 
try to show up and um, yeah, I think that's the only thing that's going to make us feel less hopeless is kind of making it clear to each other that, that we're in it together. Yeah. um, Absolutely. And um, my, uh, my only, my only addition to that would be make sure you keep your eye on what's important, which is ending, um, ending this war and then ending apartheid in, in uh, the lawn. Um, that's to me what we need to keep our eye on the prize on and not be distracted by other things. Um, and, uh, I think we should end on that. Thank you so much. Great talking with you. All right. Thank you for supporting Varmblog. If you would like more, you can find our stream on YouTube under my name, C. Derek Varn. You can also find us on Patreon where you can subscribe for early audio access, additional shows, unexpurged audios, Q&As with me on video and other perks such as access to our archives, etc. There are three levels of support. One level even gets you on Patreon shows. Occasionally here you will hear shows done with other creators. I hope you enjoy them. We'd like to thank our producer, Paul Channel Strip, and Bitter Lake and Jason Miles for making our intro and exit music. And thank you for all you do. If you can't support us financially, you can support us by leaving a review on iTunes or your pod catcher choice. Have a great evening.